0: Tremendous stop! This is Fox. In front, save by Baker.
1: What anticipation by Baker!
0: When he comes in, he's got a shot. Hope checked away, no shot. Here's one, save. my Rock can't talk
1: enough about the play of Baker.
0: It has been a solid hockey game. Hickey coming in, drop pass in front. Save. Baker makes a big one. He's been hot, baby. And
1: now, ladies and gentlemen, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Broads alumni, Mr. Mark O'Hannon. Nice to see you, Marky.
0: Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Episode 58 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features goaltender Steve Baker, who played with the New York Rangers between 1979 and 1983. Baker was a standout at Union College, coached by the legendary Ned Harkness. He was drafted by the Rangers with the 44th pick, overall, in 1977 NHL Entry Draft. Now Steve began his NHL career losing just one of his first 10 games in 1979-80. He later gained great acclaim in the 1981 playoffs when the upstart Rangers upset the LA Kings and St. Louis Blues to advance to the Stanley Cup semifinals with Steve as their starting goalie. Steve was selected to represent the USA in the 1981 Canada Cup, where he served as Tony Esposito's backup. Steve offers some great insights on playing with Tony O. Steve also played for five Hockey Hall of Fame coaches during his career, Ned Harkness, Fred Shiro, Herb Brooks, Craig Patrick, and Bob Johnson. And he talks about the impact each had on his career and his life. He also has fun memories of Gordy and Colleen Howe from the New England Whalers 1978 training camp. Injuries curtailed Steve's NHL career, but he quickly embarked on a successful career as a media executive. Today, Steve is the chief hockey officer of Three Ice Hockey. Three Ice is a new and totally independent 3-on-3 professional ice hockey league in North America. Based on the 3-on-3 full-size rink, overtime format three ice is uniquely designed to give fans the speed skill and excitement they love 100% of the time For more information visit three that's the number three ice.com now let's talk classic hockey with number 35 Steve Baker we're back on the show with goaltender Steve Baker. You'll remember him from the New York Rangers, Team USA in the Canada Cup in 1981, and of course as a Calder Cup champion with the Maine Mariners in 1984. Steve Baker, thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Mark. It's always nice to talk to a uh, fellow Boston guy.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of that, uh, you grew up in Braintree, Massachusetts, right in the heart of Bobby Orr in the Big Bad Bruins era, and I can imagine yourself and your family perhaps watching Channel 38 and watching the Bruins. Was that the case?
1: Yeah. Um, in fact, you said Channel 38. I remember we used to have the big UHF uh, antenna on the top of the TV, and you'd turn it to try to get a better signal, and go cha-chunk, cha-chunk, to chunk chunk But uh, you remember those days. Times have changed, certainly, with uh, new technology. But uh, yeah, I, I grew up. One uh, of eight kids, uh, wow. there six boys, two girls, and I had two older brothers that needed a target to shoot at, uh, and I got elected.
0: <laughs> so often back in that time era, I, I've talked to a number of goalies: uh, Phil Meir, uh, Bruce Landon, et cetera. It's never, never necessarily something that you set out to do. It's something that kind of was foisted upon you, generally because of uh, siblings. Involved, but nonetheless, uh, you become a goaltender. And I was curious: uh, is that something that uh, you found to be uh, a natural talent of yours? You always had the great glove hand, anyway. But is that something that that, uh, you took a liking to right away?
1: Well, I appreciate that Uh, on the glove hand comment. um, I always called that my bread and butter because you could control the play with, uh, you know, with a good glove hand.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, But at any rate.
1: You know, I really, I was into baseball and I was a catcher in baseball. And so I guess uh, those tools of, I'll say, intelligence, uh, (laughs) tools of intelligence carried over into the hockey mindset, uh, you know, being a a, a field general, if you will, in the middle of the play, uh, you know, um, being responsible for a lot of. uh, you know, key elements during the course of the game, et cetera, et cetera. I, I guess I kind of gravitated towards that. And like I say, my two older brothers did need a target. Um, you know, always used to tell people when they were coming to our home back in Braintree, just look for the garage doors with all the holes in them uh, from all the fucks being shot through it. Uh, and that's that's kind of where I got my start.
0: High school hockey was real competitive in the Bay State in the 1970s. Talk a little bit about your experience playing high school hockey in Massachusetts and how that prepared you for the next level of playing college hockey.
1: Yeah. You know, for me, uh, the Catholics were what it was all about in high school back when I was playing, uh, the Catholic conference. So mm-hmm. you had, uh, huge rivalries with, uh, you know, schools like Walden Catholic and, uh, Matinon, uh, Archbishop Williams, which is where I actually went up in Braintree. And, um, you know, you had uh, BC High and Catholic Memorial, um, Christopher Columbus. Um, there were probably a few others in there as well as Avarian, uh, et cetera. I mean, that's, that's really where, you know, people would kind of bear down and watch the best high school scene uh, in the state. And um, it was a great proving ground, obviously, uh, for one to develop their skill set and play at a very high level. Um, and um, obviously get uh, exposure into the college game, uh, which I did.
0: With your success in high school, of course, you get a lot of attention from college coaches. Ultimately, you choose to go with Ned Harkness, rebuilding a program at Union. Now, Harkness, of course, is a U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame coach, a real legend. Talk a little bit about that process of choosing Union College.
1: I mean, Union is uh, is uh, was founded in 1795. It's 224 years old, so it's a very old school, one of the oldest in the country. Uh, they had had hockey, uh, um, obviously, back in the 1800s and into the turn of the century, and then for whatever reason, it stopped. Mm-hmm. So Ned's job was, um, once he was brought in there, is to actually get the rink uh, finalized and built uh, in the fall of 75 and go out and recruit a team uh, to come in and actually play a schedule, which he had to cobble together at the 11th hour when they made the announcement. And what he did do is he brought in a literal all-freshman varsity. So we were all 18-year-olds. I know a lot of the kids now that go to college, you know, they spend a couple years in junior, get a little bigger, stronger, faster, come in at 20-year-old. We came in at 18-year-olds, many of which were not even shaving. And, uh, we competed, you know, with a schedule that Ned had put together for us and, uh, we didn't lose much. I think maybe two or three times in the first year, I think seven times uh, overall in the time that I was there, I think the record was like 45, seven and two. Um, so we did a lot of winning and that certainly fell, uh, under, you know, Ned's umbrella of, you know, winning championships at RPI and also doing the same at Cornell. He knew how to put teams together and how to motivate players. It was a wonderful experience playing for him.
0: Incredibly, all that union success comes to an abrupt and immediate halt as Ned Harkness gets into a dispute with the college administration. He quits. The entire team follows suit, and the JV team actually becomes the varsity team and concludes the season. What are your recollections of that incredible set of circumstances?
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was a sad uh, turn of events. There's no question about that. But, I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, if you're in a little small um, college environment, because uh, I believe they only have about maybe 2,200, 2,300 undergrads on the campus. So it's very small, very quaint. It's a couple of national um, monuments on the campus, a beautiful campus, the first planned campus in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm and first non-denominational, uh, campus in the United States of America. Um, and all of a sudden you've got this, uh, big time program being dropped into your laps and a brand new building on campus. And, uh, you know, all these flying freshmen running around, um, you know, scoring up a storm and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, I just think that there was, you know, just natural, maybe human jealousy, perhaps maybe that, you know, started to kind of work into the works. Um,
0: But at any rate,
1: at the end of the day, uh, there were some uh, point of view differences. um, And uh, Ned decided that it was best to kind of pick up and and move on. And that kind of left us in the lurch because we went to the school to play for a legend, Mike Harkness. Uh, I had a hard decision because I had been drafted the year prior by the Rangers and also uh, Birmingham and the WHA. And I really couldn't afford at that point to just sit out and do nothing. Um, my intent was to transfer to Cornell and and play right away for them because uh, we, we ended this we ended our, our tenure at the Union, uh, I think it was at the end of the first semester. So mm-hmm. I was going to transfer in, in January. Um, but they did put a team on the ice, so that kind of ticks next to our ability for us to kind of move elsewhere. So um, I was between a rock and a hard place. I turned to the Rangers said, you know, what do I do? And they said, listen, we'll – We'll send you out to Toledo. And uh, I was out there for the blizzard of 78, which was an interesting experience, uh, stuck in the Commodore Perry Hotel in downtown Toledo, Ohio, um, eating nothing but lentil bean soup uh, for three or four (laughs) days in a row. Uh, But that being said, you know, I got there, and my head wasn't 100% on straight. You know, it really wasn't. I didn't play great. Uh, Rangers ultimately brought me into New Haven. I uh, got a chance to actually back up and watch Doug Sotar to have a wonderful uh, end of season um, run into the playoffs, the Calder Cup playoffs. And we actually got beat uh, by Maine in the Calder Cup final. So that was a good experience to me to, you know, practice at that level, see how Dougie operated, how he handled himself. He was a great pro. And, um, you know, from there. Um, that's pretty much how that season ended up but it was a lot of twists and turns in the road to say the least,
0: Mark. That's for sure, there are, uh, often are and you playing going back to Toledo for one second uh, you played 10 games there for Ted Garvin another former uh, Detroit Red Wing coach and I believe on your team that year was Mike Arruzzioni uh, and I was curious, did you know Mike previously and um, so it must have been pretty interesting to see him then become the toast of the country uh, just a couple years later
1: Yeah, it was wonderful to play with Mike. He was a great teammate, great guy. Still is, obviously, to this day. Uh, His accomplishments, along with a lot of my buddies in that 1980 Olympic team, uh, you know, uh, have obviously gone down in history. has been one of the most significant moments in all of hockey. Uh, But Mike was great. Uh, We had known each other from playing in the Pro-Am, the Pro-Am League in the summer, on the Boston area, you know, the professional guys were uh, around, as well as the b one college guys always got together and had very competitive, um, you know, competitive matches uh, over the course of several months. So I knew him from that. Obviously, knew him from his BU prowess. Uh, he was great to me while I was here in Toledo, and um, obviously, went on to bigger and better things.
0: As you noted, you were drafted not only by the Rangers but also by the Birmingham Bulls. So, uh it's 78-79 season, the year of the. So-called baby bulls in Birmingham. Uh, they end up. They already have Ernie Wakley in in camp. They end up bringing in Pat Riggin, along with five other eighteen-year-olds uh, from the Ontario League, primarily. And uh, you find yourself uh, in the way the WHA worked um, in New England Whalers training camp. Now I've talked to a lot of players who were at that camp. Uh, uh, Jordy Douglas, for example, Jeff Brubaker. Mike Rogers, Mike Antonovich, and I was curious from your uh, viewpoint as somebody who appreciates uh, hockey and in its history, it had to be pretty incredible going to camp with Gordie Howe, John McKenzie, Dave Keon, etc.
1: Oh, that was awesome! Um, You know, just to give you a little backstory there: uh, once Birmingham made the move on Pat Riggin, who was a fine lefty goalkeeper, as you know, um, and had a nice career. Um, they no longer needed my services uh, so they ended up actually uh, trading my services to New England and I'm talking to New England and I'm talking to the Rangers about coming to camp, what transpired with the Rangers is uh, Freddie Shero and Mickey Keating came in so I was drafted by the Ferguson regime so you've got Freddie and Mickey making decisions and they're like, hey man, we didn't draft you, we don't know you and uh, I wanted a little bit of love and I didn't get a whole lot of love (laughs) And uh, so New England came up with some cash for me to come to camp and, um, you know, went to their camp, uh, had a pretty decent camp. Uh, one of the greatest experiences, and you kind of uh, highlighted it, was having Gordy there, Mark and Marty. Uh, and Gordy Howe was kind enough to take myself and Peter Crawford, who was another gentleman that played with me, Bill Bill Crawfords. Um, you know, you know, his brother Bobby oh, yeah. And Lou Crawford. Uh, Mark Crawford, etc. Uh, so uh, he, Gordy invited us over to his house for lunch. You know, you have double sessions and training camps, so well, over my place in Glastonbury for lunch. Uh, his wife Colleen was kind enough to make us some nice, uh, tomato soup and, and uh, grilled <laughs> tomato sandwiches. I never forget that when you hang <laughs> out with Gordy How. Right. And he was nice enough to walk us around his house. He had an indoor pool. He had a uh, a wonderful mantle with an AFCO trophy and also a Stanley Cup trophy there. And it was just great to be able to spend time with him. Uh, All the other legends that you alluded to in camp, uh, David Keon and Johnny Pine McKenzie and Ricky Lee and uh, George Lyle and, you know, young guys like Jordy and and Ruth Baker that were going to be up-and-comers and and certainly were up-and-comers. I ended up um, pulling my groin, um, interestingly enough, in that camp and uh, the Whalers had a deal with Springfield, the American Hockey League, which was mostly an L.A.-run enterprise, right. where they could put some players in there. And I ended up going to uh, camp there. When you broke camp, they sent me there, and I'm hobbling around a little bit and you know, getting medical treatment. But I was there, uh, interestingly, with Mario Lissara. And Mario had a good career, obviously, with the Kings. Right. But, uh, you know, proved himself there with the American Hockey League uh, Springfield Club prior to and I got released from camp, um, still hobbling a little bit. So I turned back to the Rangers and said, uh, you know, you need some help. And they said, yeah, we need you in New Haven right away. Um, they had made some moves uh, with a lot of guys they had on the contract. And, um, and uh, Lindsay Middlebrook was there in New Haven. So it was Lindsay and I that uh, basically took that club and, and moved it all the way to the call cup finals that year. So again, a, a bunch of interesting turns and the road, for my career, but this is just you know what I was given and how it
0: played out. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We had a recent conversation with Bruce Landon, who uh, was there not as a player when you were there in Springfield, but uh, d- d- similar conversation. He was in the Kings' camp. He comes down to Springfield. He breaks his hand. He tries playing with a broken hand, and it twists and turns all over the place. And they, it, it's interesting when you when you look back at it, how fate can be uh, can change at any moment. Uh, especially in the, in the professional sports world. But as you noted, that New Haven Nighthawks team goes to the Calder Cup Finals, loses to one of our previous show guests, Blake Dunlop and the Maine Mariners. team did not lack toughness. Uh, Frank Beaton, John Bednarski, Dean the Hulk Turner, and a lot of good young up-and-coming players as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, we could throw in there uh, Dan Clark as well. Um, you know, we had Don Maloney there to start off the season. Uh, we had a, you know, a, a really great uh, group of young players that melded in well with, you know, Dale Lewis and Tom Colley and uh, a number of veterans, sinewy veterans, uh, Bobby the Cat Sheehan, um, Pride of Weymouth, Massachusetts. That's right. Uh, I was going
0: to ask you about that right next door to you. She, Cat Sheehan.
1: Yep, Bobby the Cat Sheehan. So we had a great team um you know, like I say, we got all the way to the Call the Cup Finals and ended up um, filing to Maine once again. Um, but you know, that being said, one of one of the unique experiences uh, during that season, um, and I give Freddie Cheryl a lot of credit. Uh, the Rangers were going to the finals in '79 against the Canadians, of course, and we're going to the finals against uh, Maine. And we were waiting for things to kind of shake out, so there was a little bit of time we're practicing down in New Haven. Uh, the Rangers are practicing up at Rye Playland. Uh, not no, they were actually in Elmsford at that time. Forgive mm-hmm. me. So they were in Elmsford, New York, and uh, Freddie called up and he said, "Let's have a full, let's have a full um, game between New Haven Nighthawks versus the Rangers." Oh. And uh, we, we were wearing our gear, and they were wearing their gear, and uh, you know, let's put uh, 20 on the clock and and let's go. And uh, played three, you know, full 20-minute uh, periods and. I got to start and really played well against them. I know I stopped Espo on a breakaway and made some other pretty good saves. So when I left the game, uh, we were winning three to nothing, as I recall. Wow. And so, uh, so, mm. and, and not nothing against Lindsey because again, this is the team that's going to the Stanley Cup Finals, right? right. The Rangers were quite a talent uh, in and of themselves, but uh, we ended up, I think, losing the game. I don't know, five three, might have been six three. Um, but, you know, I had a really good outing, and this really was, you know, Fred Shero and Mickey Keating's first chance to see me, you know, perform, um, you know, in that kind of an environment. Uh, they had us up to the finals of the Stanley Cup after we bowed out, and, you know, just being in Madison Square Garden, watch JD do his thing, watch the team do their thing. I mean, that's that's when it really becomes real to you, you know. You start to say, hey, man, this is – this is what I want for my life. This is the environment I want to I want to thrive in. And um, you know, fortunately, that next year I had a great training camp. And um, and, uh, and and interestingly enough, um, we went to Richmond, Virginia. Um, Mickey Keating, I guess, being kind of new on the job, I, I guess he had forgotten to like set up the ice situation for up in the New in York area. So we ended up going to Richmond, but they had developed a relationship with the, um, with the uh, ECHL mm-hmm. or a Richmond team, Rangers Farm Association. And so uh, we wanted to play a game uh, for the Richmond fans to get them turned on to hockey. And they ended up putting the new Haven Nighthawks for all intents and purposes in the Richmond rifles uniforms
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> playing the New York Rangers who had just lost in the Stanley cup finals the year before and uh, here again, I started the game. I think we were up three to one when I gave the tag to um, I gave the tag to Jim Seaweed Petty. God rest his soul. Mm-hmm. And Weed came in, and unfortunately, he got hammered on the back end of it. And I don't know, we, we lost probably I don't know seven to four or something of that nature. But um, you know, here again, another chance for me to perform at a high level and kind of turn some heads. And I remember at the end of that camp, Danny Summers, who's the head scout, came up to me and said. Stevie, we know what you've done here. Uh, just go down to New Haven, keep your nose clean, play hard, and you're going to get your sniff. Right. And mm-hmm. sure enough, I did, you know.
0: Yeah, you sure did. And one of the interesting things we, we talked about growing up in Massachusetts, and I'm just going to take a sidetrack for a second, is that the big trade in 1975, 76, Esposito, Vadne, go to New York, Parker, Bertel, come the other way. And what that did was that compelled me to uh, – basically begged my parents to get cable TV because I could get WOR in New York and yeah. watch the Rangers because I wanted to watch Espo. So anyway, uh, during that era, I got a chance to watch a lot of Ranger hockey. And in 1979-80, as you noted, the year before, the Rangers had gone to the finals. Inj- some injuries creep up. You got an opportunity to jump into the lineup. And of course, you you uh, excel right away, uh, winning, I believe, nine out of your first ten. First of all, do you recall your, your, obviously I assume you do, your first NHL game and just the, I guess, exhilaration of finally making it and then just uh, getting on a roll?
1: Yeah, I mean, nobody would forget that, right? And for me, it was even highlighted that much more so when I showed up in the Rangers locker room, they actually placed my stall between Phil Esposito and Gerald that oh. <laughs> So well. I'm looking to my left and looking to my right, you know, over 30 years of experience between the two of them the National Hockey the guys that I grew up watching in Boston, you know, grew up idolizing in Boston, particularly Espo. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was pretty... Uh, Pretty amazing, but uh, we tied the, uh, I was actually, Minnesota came back to tie us, but it was a 4-4 tie at Madison Square Garden, I want to say maybe November 28th or somewhere along there in, uh, in 79 uh, that I got my first sniff, and um, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it was an unbelievable experience. A lot of my family came down from Boston, I was able to grab some tickets off the guys on the team. And then whatever that I couldn't uh, provide for them, big family, uh, they scalped out front. So they were all in the building, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience to be able to share with them, and um, you know, obviously put into put into my own personal um, accomplishments.
0: This is such a colorful and interesting ah. ranger team: uh, Don Murdoch, Ron Dugay, Espo, Ron Greshner, Barry Beck. What was the scene like? It, it, it's not like you're playing in, in Colorado or something at the time. I mean, it's, it's pretty electric. Uh, what was the, the scene around the, around the hockey team those days in Madison Square Garden?
1: Well, um, again, a cast of characters, but also a cast of very, very talented players. And right. You mentioned a few of them, guys that had uh, very long and uh, prestigious mm-hmm. NHL careers. Um, you know, certainly Gresh um, being a lifer in the Ranger uniform. Uh, a lot to be said about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Barry Beck was just uh, a hulk of a defenseman and just uh, multi-talented, multi-skilled. Um, you know, to be there with the Walter Tuchukes and the Steve Bickers that have put in so many great years in the NHL and be part of that overall equation. Uh, J.D. is my my roommate uh, oftentimes uh, when it wasn't bad. Um, you know, it just—it was just a wonderful group. Uh, you you mix in some of the new talent with you know Donnie Murdoch and Don Maloney. Uh, David Maloney was still young, you know, young captain at that time. Initially, uh, we had a great squad, and yeah. um, you know, for me, uh, they embraced me as being, you know, obviously, uh, you know, a rookie stepping into a very difficult situation as the Rangers had had a terrible start to the season. And uh, that's why they gave me my opportunity. Um, And we were able to kind of turn it around a little bit, um, you know, uh, before J.D. was able to get himself back healthy and uh, start to carry the ball again.
0: Two players that I also wanted to mention sometimes get forgotten because their peak years were – in Sweden and the World Hockey Association, and they battled some injuries, particularly uh, Ulf Nilsson uh, when they came into New York, but two outstanding players. I wanted to get your, your thoughts on Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nilsson.
1: Yeah, two great pros. Ulf, um, unfortunately, uh, while I was there, did have some injury issues, um, and uh, I can tell you that he was outstanding in the uh, 81 playoff run uh, when I was actually, you know, uh, in the net um, and uh, certainly showed, you know, the skill set that he had for so many years over in Sweden and, and Winnipeg and the World Hockey, uh, playing alongside with uh, Anders and also Bobby Hull. Uh, just a marvelous centerman that had great vision, uh, you know, thread thread the needle, make passes that you just, you, you dream of, you know, gretzky S kind of passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just such a smart player. Uh, Anders was... Uh, he was a real powerful guy, you um, know, big chest on him, um, could skate like the wind, um, had an unbelievable wrist shot that he could just rip on the fly, and maybe, perhaps, one of the best backhands I've ever seen in hockey. Right. And I, I always tell a funny story, uh, we had a penalty shot, Andrews had a penalty shot in the 81 playoffs against Mike Liu, and I came over to grab a little drink of water at the break, and uh, he looked at me, he says, you know, what do you think, where should I go, what should I do? Well, I had seen him in practice so many times and Liu was a big guy like myself and, you know, did like to, you know, drop down and kind of butterfly a little bit and fan, take away the low. I said, you know what? I think you should walk in hard, freeze him, and pull it to your in and go roof under the bar. (laughs) And he kind of nods his head at me. He goes, yeah, that's a good idea. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shoot it right to his legs. I said, okay, (laughs) go ahead. And sure enough, he went in and he, he just buried it. Just clicked the top of his stick and just enough to trickle back through uh, through Mike's legs into the net. But uh, Anders was a, a terrific player, and obviously the numbers that he put up um, certainly bear witness to that.
0: My re- most recent guest was Joe Watson, former Philadelphia Flyer, and I was talking to him about Fred Shiro, who was such a – at least to a fan, from a fan's perspective, uh, a mystery. And I was curious uh, how you found uh, Fred Shearrow to be as a coach.
1: Well, Fred gave me my opportunity, and so I'm certainly grateful for that. Um, he was kind of a mysterious guy. Uh, you know, he'd already won the Cups in Philly, but by the time he got to New York, uh, very quiet, very understated. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it before, uh, had a pension for writing Interesting quotes and motivating quotes on the on the chalkboard
2: Mm -hmm.
1: to get the guys going Um, You know, I I have nothing but great things to say about him. He's a Hall of Fame coach and um, You know, he was awful good to me Um, You know, he he was one of those guys that uh, you know, he he looked for his players um, To you know, really um, have accountability if you will with one another he was a pros, a pros, pros kind of coach, coach if you will. Right. Uh, I guess that's what I'm going to try. And, you know, it's all about accountability. It's about, look, at you're here, you, you know, you can play at this level, uh, do the things that you should be doing to make sure that you're ensuring success. And I don't want to have to babysit you guys. Right. And uh, he's had great success with it. And uh, you know, I remember young, young Ray Shero uh, as, as a little guy coming around the room and, <laughs> you know, grabbing sticks and pucks and what have you, and he's certainly gone around and had a great career himself uh, as a general manager in the league.
0: So you've made a, a strong debut in 79-80. However, you end up, now we're going we're to get to some, some great success in 81, but prior to that, you end up back in New Haven. Uh, can you explain how that all transpired? You play well down there again, but how did that all transpire that you uh, started New Haven, and then what circumstances led you to be recalled?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a matter of, you know, two-way contracts, right? You know, and right. you've got guys that you've got to kind of clear out and make, make decisions on, and they're on one-ways. Um, you've got to showcase them before you can move a contract. And so uh, at the start of that season, after not a great camp, but an okay camp, um, they decided to send me back down. And... Um, Roger Bear was actually our new coach in New Haven at that time. I think Parker McDonald had been there for a number of years, had gone on taking the L.A. job.
2: Mm-hmm. So Rod
1: was there, and Jim Troy was his assistant. And Rocky was great, and he just said, you know, Bakes, do what you do. Um, you know, this thing is going to settle in a little bit. We've had some churn with players. We've got to get guys used to playing with each other and get to know each other. So we didn't have a tremendous start. We had an okay start. Uh, I want to think I was somewhere in around the 500 mark. Um, with my personal play and um, you know that's when the the call came out uh, from Craig Patrick to come up uh, as we kind of turned the corner I want to think it was maybe February uh, looking at the playoff situation and at that time you know, the old rumor used to be, the old word used to be that everyone makes the playoffs in the NHL with 21 teams, 16 teams in the playoff. Mm-hmm. Well, we were sitting there at like, you know, anywhere from 16 to 14, depending upon the day, uh, potentially even, you know, push getting pushed out and not making the playoffs. And, uh, we had a good run, uh, with Craig Patrick behind the bench. Um, he had uh, told me at the deadline, he said, you know, Steve, you're going to be our guy, just carry the ball and do it. And, um, we had a good run. We got into the playoffs beating some significant teams down the stretch. And we finished, I think, 14th overall facing in our first round. Uh, I think they were the number four team overall with the LA Kings in the uh uh you know with the yeah. their trigger crown line was just you know phenomenal at that point in time. And they'd had an unbelievable season. That's who we started out against.
0: Yeah, it was a uh, a strong Kings team who aforementioned Mario Lazard and goal. And, of course, the Triple Crown line was in full steam ahead. A former Springfield Indian, Charlie Simmer, joining Dave Taylor and Marcel on. And, as you said, you knocked them off in round one. In round two, even a bigger surprise, the St. Louis Blues, who were the second team overall that year. You knocked them off as well. As you noted, Ulf Dilson playing great hockey at that point up front. You're getting a chance to play in goal. And it's very, again, use that word, electric at Madison Square Garden. Uh, it had to be, again, for a team that was kind of trying to find its legs during the regular season, it had to be pretty, again, uh, exciting to be able to roll past two strong teams in the first two rounds of the playoffs, and you having a significant role in that.
1: Yeah, no question. It was a thrill of my life. Um... You know, the uh, I believe the St. Louis Blues had uh, been in the Catbird seat for the President's Trophy all season long, and then I think it was the last game of the regular season. Uh, they actually got nudged out by the uh, defending Stanley Cup Championship Islanders. So they were a terrific team. And uh, during that period that, you know, Craig had kind of gave me the nod down the stretch run, I know we had a trip out to the Checkerdome in uh and St. Louis, and we got wronged. Uh, I forget the the exact score, but it might have been something like seven to two, mm-hmm. uh, seven to three, something like that. And uh, you know, so I got a taste of the kind of offensive power that they had on their their squad. Um, and you know, put my tail between my legs, and we came home and and uh, you know, ramped it up from there moving forward. But so I knew going in against uh, you know certainly the Kings and and obviously the Blues, that uh, we had our work cut out for us. And I think we took St. Louis down in uh, six games, if I'm not mistaken, finishing yes. them at home.
0: Correct. Yeah, I've talked to We've had uh, Blake Dunlop and Wayne Babbage on the show previously talking about how uh, their season came to uh, a stunning conclusion around, two. They obviously had big expectations. That was their breakout year, and things were never quite the same. In St. Louis, um, you go on in the third round, and you do something not quite unusual back in those days, and that you end up losing to a, you know, one of the greatest teams of all time, the New York Islanders. Uh, no, um, no shame in that, however, as they were, <laughs> they were right in the middle of their dynasty.
1: Yeah, they were a machine. There's no question about it. Um, and obviously, with J.D. and the Rangers pushing past them that one year before they started their four in a row. Uh, they were not going to let the Rangers slip through the cracks again here. Uh, and, you know, having won a cup, they knew what it took to win. Uh, look, no shame. I think we were the seventh team uh, out of uh, 16 uh, series that they actually wanted to win those four cups. I think they went on and won, what, 19 series in a row before they finally got dethroned right. uh, in that fifth year. But uh, a total machine, um, and uh, you you have to take your hat off to them what they accomplished as an organization as a group of players uh was just just incredible unfortunately for me for the rangers uh we had to uh we had to draw that card and uh it was not a good card to be drawn
0: <laughs> <laughs> no nope, but some good success success nonetheless and you end up playing for uh, in, uh the next fall I, I think a great honor being one of two goaltenders on the 1981 Team USA Canada Cup team. Now, this Team Canada, I mean, excuse me, Team USA team is a lot of your old friends who uh, would have ended up playing in the 1980 Olympic team, the Neil Broads, et cetera, but also uh, some guys like Robbie Fitorik, some old pros, and Gordy Roberts, and some future Hall of Famers, uh, Joey Mullen being one and Mark Howe being another. So a good team, to be sure, uh, quite an honor, but the one guy I'm interested in is a guy who got his citizenship in the country. Who obviously was born in Canada, and goaltender Tony Esposito. What was your experience like with Tony O? Did you learn from him in this in this uh, stretch of time? Did you get a chance to know him a little a little bit during the the Canada Cup?
1: Yeah, I just uh, again another highlight, right? A chance to actually wear your uh, your country's colors in international play um, always a big thrill Uh, I was thrilled to be part of that squad uh, to have Tony as my partner uh, made it even that much more impactful Um, I had been a huge Tony um, fan as a kid growing up Um, obviously the whole thing with you know Phil and Mm -hmm. Tony uh, competing against each other and and having some great wars and series against each other but I, I you know, I really got along great with Phil. He was always so kind and and generous to me. And uh, um, I just gained the sense that when I did finally meet Tony, uh, you know, that it was just, uh, it was like old home week. It was like the same person, you know, and he took me under his wing. He was terrific to me Um, as luck would have it. uh, You know, my wife was around for a lot of that tournament uh, as was uh, his missus and uh, Marilyn and um, you know, the girls hung out a lot. We hung out together, going to some concerts and just having some fun. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was it was a great relationship, and you know, we maintained uh, some contact, uh, you know, well after that as well. Uh, whenever we get together, it's you know, like you saw each other yesterday.
0: That's great. Good to hear. Now you talked before about uh, early in your career you uh, had a groin injury uh, that kind of resurfaces. Now Tom Fergus of the Boston Bruins. Had one of the best wrist shots in all of hockey, and it was a wrist shot from him that kind of accelerates uh, or exacerbates that injury, and uh, costs you a, a significant amount of uh, of time. Can you explain that? You're in, I guess, I think the game was in Boston, and uh, how can you relive that painful memory?
1: Yeah, it was a Halloween night, as a matter of fact, in Boston Garden in '81. Uh, we had a new coach with Herb Brooks. And uh, I had just come off of, you know, going to uh, having a long season prior to, you know, losing in the semifinals of Stanley Cup to the Islanders, having a short uh, recoup period and then getting into training camp with Team USA in the Canada Cup, uh, doing some traveling overseas and what have you. And then uh, not overseas, but, you know, throughout North America and then uh, ended up going overseas for training camp. Herb decided to have our training camp over in, uh, in uh, Sweden and, then over and played in a tournament over there. And so it was a lot of bouncing around, um, came back, uh, the team struggled a little bit, uh, trying to adopt Herb's, you know, Bob and weave style versus that typical, you know, North American style of up and down your lane kind of thing. Right. Uh, so we struggled out of the gate, uh, it always makes it difficult on the goaltending, uh, when guys are trying to adopt a new system and they're a little unsure. Uh, so we saw a lot of rubber, both myself and Stevie weeks, uh, and, um, I got the nod in Boston, you know, the, the word was, you don't know, start a rookie in Boston. It was hard enough to play there. It's back in the old Boston garden with those, you know, little narrow corners and all that stuff and crazy cross corner bounces and plays that would come at you left and right. And the Bruins had a nice, nice hockey club. Uh, and it was, uh, I was actually feeling, you know, my groin was bothering me a little bit as I got into Boston. You know, you'd get into the rink, you put on the hydrocoilator pack. I pulled it a little bit on a Sunday night game prior to against the um, Edmonton Oilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Führer's first year. Uh, they were quite a machine. Pulled it a little bit. Uh, next day we had practice, kind of went through it easy, tried to get a little bit of you know, treatment on it. So I'm here in Boston, I could feel it was still bothering me a little bit. Halfway through the second period, Tommy came in. He was a left shot. Uh, came down the right through the right circle and then cut across and was forehand. Let a quick wrist shot go to my right side, and as I kicked out to do the split kick, uh, it's like my left my left groin exploded and it just ripped it right off the bone wow. and uh, just exploded. Uh, it's the best way to explain it. Pain like I've never had before in my life. Uh, the hardest thing about that was, you know, they wanted to put me on a on a stretcher and I knew I had a lot of family in the building. I said, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, Mike O'Connell, who was, I played with in high school and grew up in, you know, in, in the Boston area, uh, myself, and played on played on the uh, Team USA and the Canada Cup team together. Mike O'Connell and uh, Barry Beck uh, got under my my, my uh, arms and kind of helped me off the ice. They got me into a locker room. They started the electric stim and the ice and everything else they do. But
0: talk about a lonely
1: feeling sitting underneath the stands when the team goes back out to go to war and my dad came walking down into the locker room. They they let him into the room and, you know, he had his his hat on kind of a Tom Landry hat that they used to wear back in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I told him, I said, dad, I'm, I'm hurt bad. You know, I'm really hurt bad. I could just see, you know, you know, kind of the the tears well up in his eyes. That never happened too much, but it was, it was a tough moment. It really was.
0: No question about it. And I appreciate you sharing that. And, So that injury ends up leading to some uh, missed time. And in 82-83, you're in Tulsa playing for Hawkeye-Webster in the Central Hockey League, and you have a a full season there. But you've just been at the top of the mountain. You've been in New York. You've been in the spotlight. You've played for your country. What's your attitude like in 82-83 as you're you're playing for uh, a Tulsa team in the Central League?
1: Yeah, I mean... You know, first of all, it's you know, I hadn't played in the uh, in the Central League. Um, so way, I'm way out in Tulsa trying to figure that out with a wife and two kids. And, um, you know, I had to prove that I could play still. You know, I had basically lost a year out of my career and, you know, you worried about getting that black ball label, right? This guy's nice. damaged goods. So I had to prove I could play. Um, fortunately, uh, Tommy was an old pro who happened to be in New, ha- in, uh, New England in that first camp of mine, too. So it's funny how life, how life uh, proceeds. But, uh, he, was a great, he was a great coach. Um, he gave me the reins to play and play a lot. Um, uh, we had a very, very young team, um, maybe only four or five veterans on the squad, and the rest of them were young kids, most of which came from the college environment. So we struggled a bit, but um, I know that uh, I played more games than anyone else Uh, in the Central Hockey League that year. I think I played maybe 53, 55 games, if not more, Mm -hmm. and uh, certainly proved that I was, uh, you know, strong enough to get at it again. Uh, Did get a couple of sniffs up with the Rangers uh, with injuries and things of that nature, but I think at that point it was so late in the season, um, it wasn't Craig nor Herb's, uh, you know, choice to really want to move forward and start playing musical musical chairs with your goalkeeping again. And so, um, you know, I, I finished the year out in Tulsa and then joined them, of course, as a Black Sheep squadron for the playoffs.
0: Right. Uh You know, I wanted to take one quick step back, and I just a couple more questions for you, Steve. But one I, I failed to ask, I wanted to ask you. You had a unique experience. Two of the most, probably the most legendary coaches in U.S. hockey history, uh, especially at that time, Herb Brooks, and Badger Bob, you played for back-to-back, you know, Badger in the Canada Cup, Herb with the Rangers. Um, could you compare those two? Uh, what was it like playing for each?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, you know, I was very fortunate in the time that I had uh, in my college and pro career to have played for five Hall of Fame coaches. And a lot of people are lucky to say that they played for one, but I played for five of them. Mm-hmm. And I learned uh, five key principles that I apply to my business life uh, that have powered me up throughout my life. Uh, and they are trust, open communication, commitment to excellence, accountability, and attention to results. And uh, the trust I always uh, apply to uh, Craig Patrick. Uh, he was all about that in the room and about the players, you know, trusting one another to do what they, what they do best as a team. Um, as far as... Uh, um, open communication was concerned, that was Bob Johnson. I mean, he was a great communicator, and he did some things that were very unique and different uh, than any other coach who was you know, employing back in the day. So it was a great experience that played for him, obviously in Canada Cup uh, for Team USA. Uh, commitment to excellence was Herb Brooks. I mean, you know, Herb was all about doing what you had to do, uh, both on the ice and away from the ice, to be the very best athlete that you could be. Um, he always used to have a uh, slogan up in the locker room, as I remember, uh, your body is your asset. And um, he expected the guys to put time in away mm-hmm. from the rink uh, in terms of, you know, staying in shape. Uh, he wanted the guys, you know, 5% or less body fat, you know, which is just incredible. Um, accountability would obviously point to Fred Shero. I think I chatted about that a little bit earlier. You know the way he went about his business and what he did. And attention to results, I would throw that at Ned Harkness, who uh, to this day is probably one of the winningest coach uh, percentage-wise ever in the history of college hockey. Right. Um, so I, I was very fortunate. Um, I'm blessed to uh, have been able to experience that. I was just up at union this last weekend. They had a, uh, their hall of fame induction ceremonies and we had one of our guys from our class, one of our captains, Jack Rankin, go in. Um, and, um, the uh, head coach Rick Bennett was kind enough to let us come in the locker room and talk to the players. And I went through the you know, very five same principles. Oh, great.
0: Yeah. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Things that I was able to learn and apply to my life and, um, you know, I feel very blessed um, that I've had the life that I have, and uh, hockey certainly has been a big part of it.
0: Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the last season of your career. It's an interesting one. Talking about interesting coaches, you've got Tom McBee and an interesting team in Maine, which has a lot of veteran guys, Gary Howitt and Mike Antonovich, guys like that. And I'm wondering what your attitude like. It's almost, you know, sometimes those things can go either way. You get a lot of veteran guys and they're just, they're pouting, they're unhappy or whatever. Or you'd have a bunch of veteran guys who know that maybe the clock's ticking on their career and they want to go out on a, on a positive note. And one interesting thing that happens for Maine during that year is that Tom McVie is recalled to coach the New Jersey Devils of the NHL, and he's replaced by John Paddock, who's eventually going to become a American Hockey League Hall of Fame coach. And things turn around quickly.
1: Yeah, so I mean, Johnny was a great guy, uh, did a terrific job. Obviously, getting everybody pulling in the same direction. Um, that year, the the team had struggled a bit. Um, in terms of creating an identity for themselves, and again, there were a lot of guys in that club that had NHL experience that were kind of looking at this as the exit stage right to their career. Uh, we got to a point um, towards the end of the season as we turned third base and looked at home plate, where we all just kind of got together and said, "You know what? Let's really give it our best go and let's just win this thing." And I think we finished maybe fourth in our in our division. You know, so we weren't we weren't killing it. Uh, and we ended up pulling a bunch of upsets and, and next thing you know, we found ourselves playing against Rochester in the finals and um, we beat them. You know, I, I know they were saying that, uh, you know, we weren't going to beat them on their ice, but we did beat them at the old war memorial mm-hmm. in Rochester. And uh, I remember that uh, I'd walked across the ice. This is before cell phones walked across the ice. and know they had pay phones on the other side of the rink. I called my wife and I said, honey, I think that's it. I'm going to call it a wrap. Uh, went out with a championship, wanted to compete for the Stanley Cup and win a Stanley Cup. Didn't do that, but I did compete for the Cup. I won a championship now in the Calder Cup. Um, you know, it's time to create a little bit more stability for you and the kids instead of bouncing you around, you know, um, everywhere. Um, but Tim Buck too and, um, you know, I did just that and went back to school, finished my education and then moved into a very productive 30-year executive uh, media and sports marketing career.
0: Yeah, you absolutely have. And you kind of answered my question earlier, my last question. But, Steve, the the mere fact that you played in the National Hockey League at a high level had uh, success – so you basically at a very young age set out on, on, a, on a course and reached the, the pinnacle. You saw also in that by, by default, you've, you've noticed some of the great uh, mentors and leaders you had along the way uh, who greatly impacted your hockey career. But now you carry that over into a successful career off the ice. And I, I, I guess I, I, you, again, you've kind of touched on it, but the, um, the carryover from the experiences you had in hockey to your business success. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been blessed. Um, as I say, there's no crying in baseball, there's no crying in hockey. And, uh, <laughs> when you get to, you get to that point where you realize that, you know, maybe, um, you know, your best is left behind, uh, and and I would have loved to have said, hey, listen, if I had stayed healthy, what could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I had to pursue another road. Uh, everybody's situation is different, uh, and I did have a wife and two kids that I was responsible for. I also knew that, you know, I, I could finish my education in a year and then jump into something and and make a career out of it. Um, I think the hockey, uh, the hardest thing is the is the um, you know the stepping away in uh, that transition period.
2: Right. Um, and I
1: think me going back to school full time uh, really benefited me because it, it it didn't allow me to sulk it didn't allow me to sit back uh, I had opportunities to go overseas and play in you know the, uh, the Swedish Elite League and I just said you know I'm going to have my kids growing up speaking Swedish uh, <laughs> you know it's you got to, you got to just bite the bullet at some point. And I did that. Um, I was very proud of the day that I graduated, uh, and then started to, you know, pursue opportunities moving forward, uh, got into the media business, had some great mentors along, um, uh, along the way, uh, in that career as well. But the perseverance, um, that you learn, uh, and the ability to forge relationships and teamwork and all those five principles that I mentioned earlier, the trust, the open, Communication, commitment to excellence, accountability, intentional results. Those are the things that you carry with you that become part of your DNA and, and forge your success uh, or failure, you know, moving forward. And I always say that that was my pyramid of success. You want a wide base in the bottom of any pyramid and it all starts with trust.
0: Absolutely. That's uh, very instructional and very motivational, by the way. Now, I have to ask you one last question, which I forgot to ask, but if you think of Steve Baker... You think of that just awesome mask you had, uh, Statue of Liberty mask, and was that something that uh, you had inspired and created yourself? Did you have help with that artistry? Uh, how did that all come about?
1: Yeah, i got to give Greg uh, Harrison, um, who is a well-known mask maker and artist up in the Toronto area, I have to give uh, Greg big kudos there. The only instruction that I gave him when I was shifting out of a Higgins mask into uh, one of his uh, was that uh, I wanted to, you know, pay tribute to the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a fairly new phenomenon, right, where the guys oh, yeah. started singing. And, I mean, I played uh, just when colored equipment was starting to come in. So nice. uh, it, it was a bit of a, a while ago. But Greg did an unbelievable job. And, um, you know, of course, he had the Empire State up the middle and then a star over the top and a star in each cheek and, and classic Ranger red, white, and blue and I was very proud to wear that mask. He approached me when they had the Olympic Games in Calgary, and he said they were going to do an exposition of all the old masks and put them up, and he said, would you mind, you know, loaning yours? And I said, sure, love to. Uh, From that point, it was such success at the Calgary Olympic Games that they decided to do the same at the uh, NHL Hall of Fame, uh, which I believe it's still there to this day, and uh, I know it's one of the big, uh, you know, one of the big – you know exhibits that folks like to gravitate towards up in Toronto. So I can say that, you know, although uh, I didn't make it to the Hall of Fame, I'm
0: <laughs> Right. Well, your legacy is is a strong one. We really appreciate uh, the time today. Steve, we learned a lot uh, that we'll be sharing with our fans and uh, both about hockey and life in general. So again, thanks for taking the time. We greatly appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: All right, Mark, it's been my pleasure and I wish you well. You take care of yourself.
0: Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, The Voice of Hockey Legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to contact us through our website at ProHockeyAlumni.org, or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Thanks for listening.